It is good to see everybody. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18. Like Jim said, we're in a series called We Believe, where we're reviewing the great doctrines of the Christian faith as they're expressed in our new Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith. I have the privilege of speaking on the Church of Jesus Christ today. Did you ever hear of the word anachronism? And anachronism is something that doesn't belong in the time or place that it's in. If you've ever seen the Back to the Future movies, it's a whole series of movies based on anachronisms. Things that don't belong where they show up. I just discovered a crazy anachronism recently. In 1997, somebody convinced the 50s crooner Pat Boone, who was known as the Christian Elvis, to release an album of classic rock covers. It was called In a Metal Mood, No More Mr. Nice Guy. If you want to experience some serious anachronism, just check out Pat Boone's swinging rendition of Stairway to Heaven. But there is a warning. You will never be able to unhear what you hear. I bring anachronisms up because the two texts we're considering this morning reveal an apparent anachronism in the Bible. Something that doesn't belong where it's set. So let's read these texts and see if you can notice it. We're going to start with Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, and then go back a couple of chapters to Matthew 16. Let me pray first. Heavenly Father, we, as we encounter your word today, I pray that you would use it to speak to our hearts and speak to our lives. I pray that you would help me to faithfully communicate your heart, your desire, your truth to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Jesus speaking to his disciples, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And then back, Matthew 16, just two verses, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Did you notice the apparent anachronism? Critics of the Bible certainly do. They'll tell you that Jesus is talking about the church, but that's an anachronism because there was no such thing as the church at that time. They would tell you that Jesus' words about the church were put into his mouth by later writers to validate the institutional church that his followers were creating. If this is true, we have some real problems with our Bible. So we need to take it seriously. Now the word here, translated as church, speaks of the gathering of a chosen or identified people. In other words, not just a crowd or an audience. For some context here, the Jews were oppressed people on a search for a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior sent by God to gather them together under his power and protection. They were regularly crowding around the latest messianic hope. Matthew 16 through 18 is filled with Jesus representing himself as that Messiah. Pulling his disciples aside, he tests them on whether they're tracking with what he's doing. Who do you say that I am? For Peter boldly confesses in verse in chapter 16, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus commends him. And then he says, essentially in the verses we've read, I've come as the Messiah to gather my people. I've come to build my church. So let me take a shot at defining the church according to Jesus, and then I want to defend that. The church is God's people gathered in God's place for God's purpose. God's people gathered in God's place for God's purpose. Now see, the Bible critics are wrong because they make the assumption that the church began in Jerusalem in Acts 2 or even maybe later on with early forms of the Catholic Church. In truth, the church began much earlier than that. We actually see the first church in Genesis 2 where God's chosen people, Adam and Eve, are gathered together in God's place, the garden, for God's purpose, to be fruitful and multiply and cultivate the earth. The Old Testament is filled with God's church. Noah and his family gathered in his ark. The Israelites gathered at Mount Sinai. God's people in the wilderness camped around the tabernacle, the temple in Jerusalem, synagogues that rose up when the Jews were in exile. All of these represent God's people gathered in God's place for God's purposes. Jesus is effectively saying, to Peter, Peter, you know your history as a Jew. You know what it means to be God's people, gathered in God's place, for God's purpose. That's what I'm doing right here. 
The people who belong to me, they are the true church. And against that church, the gates of hell shall not prevail. To that church, I will give the keys of the kingdom, verse 16, 19. And after I'm gone, I'm, in other words, what he's saying is, after I'm gone, I give authority to determine what is true faith and what is not to my church. In Matthew 18, then he doubles down on the authority of the church to assess authentic followership. In verse 17 in Matthew 18, he says, if he refuses, in other words, the, the, the person in sin who is being confronted with their sin, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you, the church, as a Gentile and a tax collector. Note that in both Matthew 16 and 18, though, here's an interesting thing. Jesus makes the same statement. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this is one of the most misunderstood texts in the Bible. It's commonly applied to what is called spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare, brothers and sisters, is real. And the Bible tells us how to fight it. Just not here. The context of both places where this statement is made by Jesus makes abundantly clear that the binding and loosing is not how we cast out demons. The binding and loosing Jesus speaks of is the delegated authority of his church, backed up by heaven itself to define. Who is a follower of Jesus and who isn't? Now that should hit you as a pretty heavy thought. It hits me that way. The church has profound responsibility from God himself to define true followership and profound authority from God to carry out that responsibility. That's why we as a church practice church baptism in our gatherings, as we will with Hank in the second service. The church is responsible to affirm the authenticity of a person's profession of faith. That's why we guard the table of communion, only offering it to professing followers of Christ. That's why we practice church membership, determining who is of this body and who is simply attending its services and functions. That's why we practice biblical eldership because God raises up leadership in the church and calls them to account for the health of its members. That's why we practice church discipline, what Matthew 18 is fundamentally about because the most precarious place to be in the world is to feel like you're comfortable among God's people, but have no evidence that you were a follower of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the New Testament includes us in the messianic community, the church of Jesus Christ, called to be God's people, gathered in God's place for God's purposes. So the question we're dealing with today is this, what does this mean to a live streaming mask enduring panic 
pandemic fatigued, election surviving, Zoom exhausted, news distrusting, social media disgusted, collection of Jesus followers who identify with this organization known as Covenant Fellowship. I have three applications today. Number one, followers of Jesus identify with God's people. Number two, Followers of Jesus gather in God's place. And number three, followers of Jesus live for God's purpose. First application, followers of Jesus identify with God's people. In early April 1891, British pastor Charles Spurgeon was battling numerous ailments and had just nine more months of life on this earth. Knowing he was approaching the end, he wanted to leave his people at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, where he had pastored for 37 years, with what he thought they needed to know after he was gone. Exactly 130 years ago this week, he preached a sermon entitled, The Best Donation. In the sermon, he speaks at length about the church, including the following words, which we have often quoted here at Covenant Fellowship. Spurgeon said, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I'd become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. For the last 37 years, Covenant Fellowship has been the dearest place on earth to me. It was here that I was baptized. All my children were dedicated here. And by the grace of God, they were all baptized here. It's here more than anywhere else I've been taught to be a man to be a husband, to be a father, to be a minister of the gospel. It is here where I've developed the deepest and most lasting friendships I will ever know. It is here where I've seen dear saints ushered into glory, people who have taught me to live and to die well in Jesus. I agree with Mr. Spurgeon Covenant Fellowship is not perfect. We've had our problems, our disappointments, our mistakes, our regrets, our failures. And frankly, I've been in the middle of all of those. But it is truly the dearest place on earth to me. Now when I think about the evangelical church more broadly in our country over the past year, we haven't seemed all that dear. The church has been beset by 
divisions on denominational lines, on racial lines, on gender lines, on generational lines, on political lines. We've had scandal and compromise and backbiting and heresies. I don't need to get specific. Our reputation is kind of like being known as an Eagles fan outside of Philly. You ever travel outside of Philadelphia and people know you're an Eagles fan, you have this sense that you should apologize. Listen, we're not all like that. You feel like you need to put some distance between you and the church. It's frankly uncomfortable these days to be identified as a churchgoer. I get it. The church's problems have given the world an opportunity to gloat over us. But not just gloat. We're beginning to be viewed as a problem, as something that needs to be opposed. Mickey Connolly, director of church care for Sovereign Grace Churches, recently wrote an article about how the church is beginning to feel the disfavor of the culture. A disfavor that may be a precursor to oppression and even persecution. He writes this. When considering any persecution Sovereign Grace churches in America and throughout the world will face in 2021 and following, I don't think it's going to be a persecution as we classically think of it. Beatings, imprisonment, and death. Though someday that may come. I think the persecution we will face is being shamed and slandered because of historic Christian beliefs and values. In other things, the very things we're talking about in our statement of faith. The hostility created in these ways then leads to material harm, being silenced, marginalized, canceled, perhaps even punished in some way. To be honest, friends, I'm not looking forward to this. Church, we should be preparing for opposition, for oppression, maybe even persecution. But we must be united as God's people to weather that storm. We cannot do it alone. And my immediate concern is at this point, there are believers who have started to distance themselves from the church, ashamed of what people say about it, not wanting to be associated, wanting to recreate spiritual spaces not tied to the follies and fortunes of the church. May that never happen among us. Charles Spurgeon, in that same sermon I quoted above, said essentially the same thing, and I exhort you to heed his words. I remember the difficulty I had when I was converted and wished to join the Christian church in the place where I lived. I called upon the minister four successive days before I could see him, and each time there was some obstacle in the way of an interview. And as I could not see him at all, I wrote and told him I would go down to the church meeting and propose myself as a member. He looked upon me as a strange character. But I meant what I said, for I felt that I could not be happy without fellowship with the people of God. I wanted to be wherever they were, and if anybody ridiculed them, 
I wish to be ridiculed with them. And if people had an ugly name for them, I wanted to be called that name. For I felt that unless I suffered with Christ in his humiliation, I could not expect to reign with him in his glory. Brothers and sisters, we are all strange characters called to an imperfect church. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's a glorious thing. Application two, followers of Jesus Christ gather in God's place. In verse 20 of chapter 18, we learn something fundamental about the nature of the church. Jesus promises the disciples, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. When believers gather together in Jesus' name, in other words, in obedience to his lordship, he will show up. Last March, I discovered something early in the pandemic. I discovered the amazing convenience of live stream churching. It was great. For many reasons, I am grateful for the gift of live stream churching. It allowed connection during the shutdown. It has served people who have needed to quarantine even today. It has introduced even new people to our church. And that's all very good. But this is important though. Live stream churching is the delivery of church content, but it is not church. Getting church content delivered to me through the device of my own choosing is not the church. We have not attended church when we've received that content. We can benefit from live stream content when we cannot gather, but we cannot be the church unless we gather. Jesus does not promise to show up among us through the miracle of YouTube. Jesus promises to show up among a people in a place. When you gather in my name, he says, there I am among you. This has always been massively important to Christians. At the very beginning of the church, in Acts 2.46, we read that day by day they met in the temple. Christians so wanted to meet with Jesus that they gathered day by day under the gaze of the very people who put their Savior to death on the cross less than three months before. Christians so wanted to meet with Jesus in the third century under Roman persecution that they would gather together in catacombs, underground burial tunnels. It felt safe because their Roman persecutors were superstitious of dead bodies and they knew anybody there was no longer there. Christians so wanted to meet with Jesus in the 16th century, the French Huguenots would gather together as a church even though the law required them to reserve the front pew for government officials who could stop the meeting at any point if they heard anything they didn't like. Christians so wanted to meet with Jesus in the 1800s that enslaved people would find hidden areas on plantations to gather together to worship. Sometimes they hung thick quilts soaked with water 
to form an outdoor tabernacle so that the sounds of their singing and preaching would be muffled and they would not be found out by slave masters. Christians now so want to meet with Jesus that Chinese Christians gather even though the government has installed more than 170 million facial recognition cameras to identify those who attend services for future crackdowns. Christians so want to meet with Jesus now that in our Sovereign Grace sister church in Nepal, six young people were just recently baptized, even though baptism is a criminal offense with a five-year prison term in that country. Brothers and sisters, following Jesus eventually gets hard for everybody. What a wonderful promise that when we gather, Jesus, ruling King, ultimate conqueror is there with us if god be for us who can be against us third application followers of jesus live for god's purpose big question in this text is why did jesus take the time to instruct his disciples about the church in matthew 16 and 18 Simple answer is he knew his time was short. Jesus wanted his disciples to begin to see themselves as his body remaining on this earth to do his will. He wanted, to see, he wanted, he wanted them to see themselves as a people left on earth for the sole purpose of representing God's saving grace in the world of sin and death. That's the reason... There is a church on earth right now. In Revelation 2, Jesus, the risen king, is also talking about the church. He speaks to the church in Ephesus. The first thing he does is he commends them. In the culture wars of their day, they were standing strong, they were not going to compromise. But they were so committed to being on the right side of things with God that he says they lost their first love. They forgot their primary purpose. We saw it today in the Heidelberg Catechism. The purpose to be the people of God on, earth, on this earth who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. Jesus warned that if they did not repent and return to that first love, he would remove their lampstand. People standing strong against the culture remove their lampstand, the very presence of power and power of the Holy Spirit from among them. Now I'm not concerned that the world will somehow defeat the church. Jesus said the gates of hell itself cannot prevail against his church. I am concerned, at least a little bit, that churches like Covenant Fellowship could lose our lampstand. We could lose it through compromise, trying to stay in the favor of the world. That happens all the time. But we could also lose it, like the Ephesians, 
by becoming so focused on opposing and bemoaning the culture that we forget why we're here. From the viewpoint of the Bible, the world itself is preserved from the wrath of God in order that some might still come and see and know the love of God. And the church has been left here to demonstrate and proclaim that love. Covenant Fellowship, in this crazy world around us, we dare not lose our primary purpose. We dare not put our lampstand at risk. Let me start to close by sharing a little personal parable. I had a chance one time to visit Cambridge, England. Cambridge is the birthplace of the English Reformation. It was early December, and that evening was the beginning of the annual Christmas celebration in town, so we went to the market square where the festivities would be taking place. We arrived in the square to find it packed with people and decorated for the holidays. As I looked around 500-year-old cobblestone plaza, I saw brightly lit shops, cafes, and pubs beckoning revelers in. At the other end of the square, the British pop band Katrina and the Waves was filling the air with their old hits and some poppy renditions of carols. The medieval and the modern met seamlessly at Cambridge Christmas. But at one end of the square, there was a foreboding shadow towering over everything else. A closer look revealed it wasn't a shadow, but the darkened facade of a large church. The largest structure on the square stood completely dark, empty, and silent. A brooding testimony to how irrelevant Christianity had become to the celebration of Christmas. As I listened to Katrina and the waves belt out walking on sunshine, under the lights at one end of the square, and a church building devoid of light at the other, I had a thought I've never forgotten. This is what it looks like to lose your lampstand. That church had become utterly irrelevant. At one time, it's a church where the gospel was declared by some of the greatest preachers of the British Reformation from that very pulpit. It exists today, most known, ironically, as the place where Stephen Hawking is buried. Stephen Hawking's atheistic brilliance does not emanate through those stained glass windows. Neither, tragically, does the light of Christ. The truth of the gospel had departed long ago. The building is effectively silent. The church is effectively dark. The lampstand is gone. You know what it is? It's a tragic anachronism. Something that from another time that now no longer makes sense in this present world. God forbid, Covenant Fellowship, that we should ever become an anachronism in this community. 
God forbid the church should ever become an anachronism in our lives, in our priorities, in our families. We have a grand purpose in God and a grand mission for God. We are the evidence God has left behind that he loves the world. Why does the church still matter? Let me close in a way that contrasts the dark church on Market Square with the glorious purpose God has, as it is written in our statement of faith. As the body of Christ, the church exists to worship God, to edify and mature His people, and to bear witness to Christ and His kingdom in all the world. Governed by Scripture, the church gathers for the teaching of the Word, prayer, the sacraments, congregational singing, fellowship, and mutual edification through the exercise of spiritual gifts. We've seen a lot of that today. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus has sent his people into the world in the power of the Spirit. That's what Bridge is about. The church's mission is to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. We do this by proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, and adorning the proclamation of the gospel through our love and good works. There will always be a gathering of believers on earth because the Lord promises to build, guide, preserve his church to the end of the age. When Christ returns, he will gather and perfect his church from every tribe, tongue, and nation as a people for his own possession, and he will dwell with them forever. That's what we're about. That's why there's a church on this earth. Let's get at it. Amen.